0: Amen. Well, if you haven't been with us, we've been in a series on the Old Testament book of Psalms. And uh, the Old Testament book of Psalms, these are a collection of Hebrew uh, prayers and poems, and uh, they span the the gamut of human expression and experience. And so uh, you see depicted in the Psalms almost every human emotion, almost every condition, almost every experience that you might ever go through, some things that you might hope you never go through. And this is why uh, John Calvin called it the anatomy of the soul. And then uh, there's another uh, old uh, theologian that called the Psalms the mirror of the soul. They allow us to peer deep down into our hearts and they help us to pray our deepest emotions to God. They're crucial, they're so important. I encourage you to read through the Psalms every day. Uh, Such a wonderful spiritual practice. Now, we've looked at several different emotions and uh, conditions, we've looked at sorrow. We've looked at praise, we've looked at anger, we've looked at discontentment, and uh, today we're going to pull out another emotion, and uh, that emotion is joy. Now, what we've said is that uh, most of the psalms, uh, 60% of the psalms are psalms of lament. What that means is that most of the psalms in the Psalter express sorrow, anger, even despair sometimes, and these are important because in some ways what they do is they validate and they affirm the feelings of sorrow that we often have as we live in this world. Uh, and for, for those of us who may be, be more melancholic, those of us who may be experiencing dark uh, things in life, the Psalms of Lament are so helpful and so comforting. But today we're going to look at Psalms of Joy because Psalms of Joy are, also make up a good bit of the Psalms. And if you're someone who is melancholic, or maybe you are challenged by uh, difficult circumstances, these psalms are a challenge to you. And so let's listen to some of the the calls to joy in the psalms. Uh, This is Psalms 100. Shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Come before him with joyful songs. Here's the Psalm 30. It says, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. I have taken off sackcloth, and and you have clothed me with joy. Uh, this is Psalm uh, five where it says, "Let all those who take refuge in, you, refuge in you be glad. Let them sing for joy." Here's another one: "May the righteous be glad and rejoice before you. Before God may they be happy and joyful. May all who seek you and rejoice. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you." So uh, these are calls to celebrate. These are calls to joy. This is a challenge. And I think it's a, a challenge that's especially relevant because I think that um, a lot of times Christians get a bad rap for being kind of sour, dour people. Uh, and you see this especially when you look at uh, art and, uh, and great literature. Uh, you see Christians often depicted as very uh, sour and sullen. Um, I remember an old movie called Chocolate. Anybody seen Chocolate uh, starring Johnny Depp, Judy Dench, Anybody? At home, anybody? Uh, this is a story where uh, Judy Dench she she moves into a small town, and she opens up a gourmet chocolate shop. Everybody's happy, except for the priest, because she opens it up right in the middle of Lent, and so the priest is angry. You know, and he's he's got this perpetual frown on his face and a dark robe, and he's pale, and he's very angry when people are enjoying the chocolate. Uh, there's another depiction in uh, James Joyce's The Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man where he describes the, uh, the face of a priest. And so he says, uh, The face of the priest was a mirthless face, reflecting a sunken day, sour-favored and devout, shot with pink tinges of suffocated anger. <laughs> and so for a lot of people uh, in the culture, they view us Christians as kind of sour, unhappy people, We don't want to corroborate this impression. And so the psalms of joy are important, but they're hard, aren't they? Especially if you are kind of given to uh, being, you know, kind of sour, (laughs) or if you're going through hardships, like how do we experience joy? Well, this psalm helps us. Psalm 16 gives us a a unique glimpse into a particular kind of joy that is possible no matter what your personality type is like, that is possible uh, no matter what you're going through in life. It's a wonderful joy. And so uh, let's look and see what it looks like and how we get it. I want to ask three questions today, always three questions. Uh, Number one, what is this joy? What joy, what is it? Number two, where does it come from? And three, how do we get it? Joy, number one, what is it? Where does it come from? How do we get it? Let's jump in and look. So uh, what is the joy that we see in Psalm 16? Well, it's a a remarkable joy that this man describes in this psalm. I mean, it's this powerful joy, and what are some of its features? Well, first I want you to see that it's a joy that is independent of circumstances. There are some psalms where the psalmist comes to God with joy. Things are going well, he's celebrating, God is blessing him, and so he comes to God to uh, celebrate the joy that he's already got this psalm, he doesn't come with joy, he comes for joy. Because the circumstances that this man is in at the moment are not joyful circumstances. We say, well, how do we know that? Well, notice at the beginning of the psalm, he says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Now, why do you take refuge? Why does somebody seek refuge? Well, you seek refuge only when you're in a storm. So here's a man experiencing joy in the middle of the storm. And this is the first mark of this unique joy that we're looking at here. In some ways, it's paradoxical. Georgian Ford, who uh, she did a little lesson for our kids last week online. And you should watch those kids' lessons sometime. I mean, they're really good, sometimes better than the actual sermon. But it was great, this lesson. She talks about the joy paradox. And the example she gave was Paul and Silas, two early apostles, singing songs to God in a prison cell. So here is a joy that you can have while quarantined in prison. Here is a joy that is possible even in the darkest of circumstances. In fact, John Ortberg says that um, one of the uh, tests of this joy is whether you have it when you are sad. And so... um, Joy is not the product of good circumstances. It's actually something that can be had in spite of of bad circumstances. This is why 1 Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though for a while you grieve. This is a joy that's possible at the same time that you're grieving. And because it's a paradoxical joy and it's independent of circumstances, it's also a durable joy. So this is a joy that is, because it's not tied to how things are going in life, it's incredibly durable. You know, for many of us, our joy is our circumstances. And when your joy is your circumstances, this is incredibly fragile because it's only as strong as your circumstances are, are good. And it goes up and down depending on whether you're having a good day or a bad day. But this is a joy that's constant uh, and it's durable because it's not tied to how things are going in life. It's deep, and it's rich, and it's not surface level, but it's, it's powerful. And um, because of that, that's incredibly um, durable. I want you to also see that this is a complete joy. Uh, in Psalm 16, notice the descriptions that he uses to describe the joy. He says in verse 11, In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And then er, later, early on in the psalm, he says that my whole being rejoices. This is a, a joy described that is it's complete and it's full. And it's important to note because uh, many of the joys that you get in this world are incomplete. Uh, in fact, any joy that you get from circumstances is, is gonna be an incomplete joy. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Surprised by Joy, and it's his autobiography. And his autobiography is his search for joy, and he said that uh, he just searched for it in all kinds of things in life. And so he says, one of the first things that gave me deep joy was Icelandic sagas. And so he said, I got my hand on one of these things. It was amazing. It was so, made me so joyful. And so I, I read every Icelandic saga I could get my hands on. And then he says, I learned Old Norse so I could read it in the original language. And he says, but even this amazing experience of reading these sagas, he says, at the end of the day, he said, I, it still left me wanting more. He says, it was an incomplete joy. He says, it gave me a joy that was full of inconsolable longing. Now, uh, Icelandic sagas might not be your thing. I imagine it's not many of our thing. But what is your Icelandic saga? What is the thing in life that gives you the most joy? Maybe it's hiking. Maybe it's sunsets. Maybe it's good food. Maybe it's good literature. Maybe it's romance. Uh, Maybe it's good friendships. Have you ever noticed that the best things in life leave us longing? Even those experiences, not bad experience, but the best experiences in, uh, in life are sort of incomplete. And you have them, and you're like, gosh, there's got to be more. But notice this man's experience. He says it's full and it's complete. There's no inconsolable longing in it. It's, it is fullness of joy. It's pleasures forevermore. And finally, I want you to see that this is a real joy. Uh, it, it is a joy that, that comes not when he stops thinking about the realities of life, but when he starts thinking more deeply about the, the deepest realities of life. Uh, this is a joy that comes by meditating and thinking and praying himself into the deepest realities of life. Some joys come by escape. You kind of forget about reality. You know, maybe through alcohol, you know, it's like, well, you know, ho, ho, ho to the bottle I go to uh, heal my heart and drown my woe. There's that kind of joy that comes through dropping out and escaping. But have you ever noticed that when you have that kind of joy, whether it's through booze or Netflix or something else, you always come back to reality worse than when you left. This is a joy that brings you back better. And for him, he comes comes in a storm, and he leaves kind of buoyant on top of the storm. It's a real joy, and it's a strong joy, and it's a durable joy, and it enables him to face the circumstances of life. Isn't this a wonderful joy? Paradoxical, durable, complete, and real. How do we get it? Well, let's ask, how did this guy get this kind of a joy? Well, he goes on and he tells us the source of joy. He says in verse 11, he says, uh, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Where, what is the source of this man's joy? God. God. Is the source of his joy. God is where he finds it. It's important to know because what we see here is that true and lasting joy is found beyond your circumstances. Now, this doesn't mean that circumstances aren't a legitimate source of joy. Uh, There are lots of things that make you joyful in life, and they should make you joyful in life. Uh, Like we just mentioned earlier, you know, good food or good sunsets or hikes or your spouse or whatever. These are all great sources of joy, but this is a joy that's deeper. If you want to get this joy, you've got to go beyond circumstances, straight into the arms of God. In God's presence, we find this kind of joy. And we see this all over the Psalms. So Psalm 1, for example, is is another description of this joy. Uh, It says, blessed is the man, or, or how happy is the man or woman... Uh, this is the joyful person. And what is that person like? They're like a tree planted by the water whose, whose roots go down into that water and get a constant source of life and joy from it. And even though the storms of life come and the dryness comes, the joy is constant because joy is where your roots are. Joy is deeper than circumstances. If you're going to get this kind of joy, you've got to go straight into God to get it. But notice he goes on, and he says, it's not only God who's my source of joy, but my particular relationship with God that's my source of joy. Now, there's two pieces of background in this psalm that every Hebrew reading it would have gotten that we need to kind of look at here. Uh, The first thing that's in the background here is the first commandment. When the he says in verse two, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. And later on in verse four, when he says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply He's alluding here to the first commandment. What is the first commandment? Class. You shall have no other gods before me. Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You shall have no other gods. That's in the background of this psalm. Another thing is in the background of the psalm, and that is the book of Joshua. Uh, if you've ever read the book of Joshua, you know that a big thing in the book of Joshua is the land. Joshua is all about conquering the promised land. And when the land is conquered, what happens? They divide up the land into portions so that every tribe gets their inheritance. And he's alluding to that. Look here in verse um, five. He says, The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So for a Jew, a land was everything, land was your meaning, land was your purpose. Where your lines were drawn and your inheritance was everything. And every good Jew would have known what this man is trying to get at here. He's saying, Lord, you are my land. God, you are my ultimate desire. I will not go after any other joy. I won't go after any other God. God, Lord, you are my only good. In other words, he's saying that the first commandment put God first. The first commandment is not only a moral imperative, it is the best strategy to find deep joy in life. If you want to have joy, put God first. Until you can say to the Lord, you are my only good, I have no good apart from you, the psalmist says you will not experience joy. In fact, the opposite will be true. He says, as long as you're going after other gods, your sorrows will multiply. Haven't you found this to be true? Here's what so many of us do. We come to God looking to get things that will bring us joy. We have these things in our mind that we think, if only I could have that, then I would be happy. Then I'd finally be happy. And Maybe for you, it's a spouse. You want romance. And this is what you've always wanted in life. It's always eluded you. And so you go to God and you say, God, oh, please give me romance because if I could get that, then I would be happy. Or maybe for you, it's wealth. You think, Lord oh, if I I could just get into that certain bracket, if I could only make a little bit more, then I would be happy. And so you go to God, oh, please bless me, Lord, because if I could have this, oh, I know that life would be full. Or you go to God for career success. If I could just reach this level of career success, oh, God, please give it to me, bless me, Lord, because if you bless me, then I could be happy. Whatever it is, we go to God like a lever, and we say, Lord, give me what I want to be happy. Lord, don't you want me to be happy? And so we go to God asking him for those things. And what God says, he says, you want to be happy? Come to me not as a lever. come to me for me. Because God himself, not anything that he can give is the source of happiness. And as soon as you put something else in life, be that money or success or vacations or whatever, whenever you put something else in that ultimate place, sorrow is soon to follow. There's a uh, an example of this that I wanted to give you guys. So this is an old, old article, in a newspaper called the Village Voice. It was like 30 years old, and it's written by a woman whose name is Cynthia Heimel, and she was a woman that uh, rubbed shoulders with lots of celebrities. And she noticed something about most celebrities. She said most celebrities are pretty miserable. And here's what she says. She said, "I pity celebrities. No, I really do." And then she names a few, which I don't know if this is fair, but I'm gonna. <laughs> give her a quote. She says, no, I really do. Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis, and Barbara Streisand were once perfectly pleasant human beings. But now their wrath is awful. I guess she had some bad experiences with them. I think when God, and then she says, I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish. And then laughs merrily when you realize you want to kill yourself. She's not a Christian. She goes on, you see, sly, Bruce and Barbara wanted fame. They worked, they pushed, and the morning after each one of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, had happened. They were still them. And the disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. So she says, here these, they thought, oh, if I could only get fame, then I'd be happy. They get fame, and it makes them miserable. Why? Well, it proves what the psalmist says here. Those who run after another god, well, for them, sorrows are going to multiply. And so the psalmist says, you want to know where to find joy? Well, you find it in God. And not only that, it's when God becomes your highest good when God becomes not just somebody who gives you your greatest desire, when God himself becomes your greatest desire. In other words, joy is a byproduct of getting God. Right, go after joy, you're not going to find it. Go after God, you'll get God, and you'll get joy thrown in. C.S. Lewis has this wonderful quote. I named the sermon after this quote, and he says this. He says, if you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, you must get close to or even into the thing that has it. It is not the sort of prize which God could, if, which God would if he chose, just kind of hand it out to anyone. It is a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality, and if you are close to it, the spray will wet you, and if you are not, you will remain dry. Lewis says, you want to have joy? Get close to God. Don't go after joy. Get close to God, and joy will be a byproduct. So what is joy? Joy is paradoxical, paradoxical, durable, complete. It's real. It's rich. It's deep. It's under the surface. It's compatible with pain. Where do you get it? Well, joy is found by going deep into God, by making him your ultimate good. By pursuing him above everything else. You go after God, you're going to get joy. You go after joy, you won't get it. Finally, let's get practical and ask the third question, uh, which is this. How do we get it? Because you look at this psalm, the psalmist here gets the joy. In your presence is fullness of joy. He's experiencing it. He's gone to God in, in a storm, and he's come out with deep, lasting, durable joy. How do we get the same thing? I want to uh, give you a few things you can do this week to cultivate your joy. First of all, choose God as your portion. Uh, The first way to find joy is to choose the Lord as your portion. In verse 5, notice this is what the psalmist does He says, The Lord is my chosen portion. Choose to make God your ultimate pursuit. And what this means is that you've got to get alone with God this week. Here's what I want you to do. Get alone with God this week and ask yourself honestly, what am I really pursuing in life? What do I really want ultimately? Because all of us will say, oh, I'm a Christian. Oh, I, I want Jesus. You know, I love Jesus. You know, he's what I want in life. But if you really draw, you know, go deep in your life and you think about it and you pray about it and you just kind of reflect a little bit, you kind of come down to reality and you, you kind of realize, what am I really going after? Maybe it's true I'm still chasing after things in this life that I think are going to make me happy. Maybe for me it is it is money, or it is career success, or it is beauty. What's interesting is for me, when I reflect on this, I always go to my kids. Because I want my kids to be happy, you know? And I pray for them to be happy. And a lot of times I get worried because I don't think they're going to grow up and have the things that will make them happy. And so I pray for my kids, you know, Lord, help them to get a good job and to make lots of money, you know, (laughs) help them to find a spouse, you know, a a great spouse, and I'm praying all these things for my kids, but am I praying that they would get God? Do I really believe that their ultimate source of happiness is in pursuing their creator? And if that's true, how come I'm not praying for that? Do you pray that for yourself? Are your prayers just full of, God, give me this and give me that and I wish I could have that and Lord, give me my object of ultimate joy or are your prayers, God, drive me deep into you? Lord, open my eyes so that I could see you more clearly so that you would be my ultimate object of, of, of affection. God, make me warm so that I won't want these things as much anymore because again, there's nothing wrong with the things in life, even the best things in life, there's nothing wrong with that you just don't want to make them your ultimate good. And So ask yourself the question, what am I pursuing? What am I really pursuing in life? Here's another thing I want you to do. I want you to set God before you. Verse 8, he says, I have set the Lord always before me. I've Set the Lord always before me. Ask yourself the question. I mean, maybe God, you are a Christian as much as you know you want. You want to serve God. You want to make him your ultimate good. The question is, what are you daily putting before you? That'll make a huge difference on whether or not you're going to experience this joy. Some of us, uh, the things that we're putting before us are just the things that we're frustrated about, just a revolving kind of, uh, you know, movie uh, uh, plot of all the things that are wrong in life. That's what's what's always set before you. For some of you, it's just constant entertainment. It's Netflix and Hulu and internet and YouTube and all this stuff. And you might be embarrassed by how many hours that thing is before you. What are you putting before you? The psalmist says, here's the deal. I'm, I'm getting next to the fire. I'm putting the Lord right in front of me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to carve out space in my weekly routine to gaze at the beauty of God, the source of true joy. Have you noticed that whenever you go to a beautiful place like the Grand Canyon or um, some other majestic, uh, uh, beautiful place in the world, it almost is like when you gaze at the beauty, you're pulled out of yourself. Spending time in God's presence, opening up your Bible, asking him to show you his beauty can be the deepest source of joy because it pulls you out of yourself. It pulls you into the presence of God. Set God before you. And then finally, I want to encourage you to make God your refuge. Notice what the psalmist does here in 16, verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. This is what he's doing in the psalm. is, is, he is He's running to God for refuge. And do you do that? In other words, uh, in times of sorrow, in times of circumstances, when you're in the middle of a storm, where do you run to for refuge? Where do you run to for salvation? If you're going to experience this kind of paradoxical joy, God has got to be your salvation. He's got to be your place of refuge in a storm. Don't run to the bottle. Don't run to Netflix. Don't run to any other God. Sorrows will multiply to those who seek salvation and refuge in anything other than the true and living God. Run to God for your salvation. Find your refuge in him. Uh, This psalm ultimately points to our great salvation, which was accomplished for us in Jesus Christ, and all the way through the New Testament, we're told to make Jesus our refuge, go to him alone for salvation, whatever sorrow you're experiencing, whether it's the sorrow of, of guilt, and, you've, and you're just deeply sad because of guilt, go to Jesus for your refuge, and you'll find forgiveness. Whether it's sin and battles with sin that are making you sorrowful in life, go to Jesus Christ and find freedom from your sin. Whether it's, it's a lack of meaning, God, I feel empty and I feel like a, a sense of meaningless in life. Go to Jesus Christ and find in his death and resurrection a sense of meaning and purpose. You see, make Jesus Christ your refuge. Make him your ultimate salvation. Him alone and nothing else. And you will find there a deep, deep joy. I love the old hymn, uh, Rock of Ages. I'm gonna read you the lyrics. It says, rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy laws demands. Could my zeal no respite? No. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Look to Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, and you will find this joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for uh, this psalm, which um, is a psalm of joy, but it's a unique kind of joy. It's It's a joy that's found in dark circumstances. It's a joy that's found in the midst of a storm. It's deep, and it's rich, and it's found only in you. And so, Father, I pray that all of us might make you our ultimate pursuit. God, I pray that we would find our ultimate satisfaction in you. Lord, I pray that you would be our refuge. And as we run into you, Lord, as we hide ourselves in you, I pray that we would find this deep, intense joy, this rooted under the surface joy that comes from your presence. We pray this in Jesus' name.